This is Shame and the Pandemic. I'm Paul McNally. So there was a really high profile case of an Australian doctor, a Melbourne-based GP called Chris Higgins. Luna is an associate professor in philosophy and medical humanities at the University of Exeter and one of the premium academics looking at shame in the country. Now, Luna has been studying shame for 15 years at this point. So we start talking about March 2020 and everything that that entails. Chris Higgins was publicly shamed by the Victorian health minister, Jenny Makakis. He had been in the States on a work trip, traveled back to Victoria, went back to work and had a, a mild cold and you know, saw some patients in his GP practice, visited some patients in a care home, and then decided to do a COVID test, as he said in a Facebook post, for the sake of completeness. And it turned out he was positive. And he'd seen 70 patients before he realized he was positive for COVID. And the health minister found out about this and basically shamed him, said it was irresponsible for him to have gone to work when he had a cold, and he should have known better and was recommending he was referred to the Australian um, the equivalent of the GMC here, the General Medical Council, the Australian medical regulator. Victoria's health minister, Jenny McCarkos, says she was flabbergasted. He returned to work following a trip to the US and had seen at least 70 patients. She didn't name him, but she singled out his GP practice and it didn't take long for a journalist to figure out exactly who it was. So he was then named in the media and shamed in the media. There was an immediately a really big backlash from the medical community who were like, you know, we are routinely expected to go to work when we're not well. In fact, it's really frowned upon if we take time off work. Also, he hadn't broken any rules. In fact, he had followed the guidance at the time, which was that you were only to get tested if you'd come back from certain parts of the world, which included China and maybe Italy. That made us interested in this phenomena, which was came up over and over again of healthcare workers being publicly shamed and named um, and blamed for spreading the virus. So the fear of contamination, healthcare workers coming into contact with the virus and spreading it to the community. This was a really live fear during the first stage of the pandemic when the risks of COVID-19 weren't exactly clear. And there was very little testing and also, especially in a UK context, PPE shortages. So there was a shortage of personal protective equipment, which meant that, which meant that doctors often weren't adequately protected from the virus. Okay, so this is my office. We are currently in the Welcome Centre for Cultures and Environments of Health in the Queen's Building at Exeter University. <laughs> we just brought in loads of books from home and then I dumped them on the shelves. There are books scattered everywhere. I guess with medicine and health, there's a real dominance of the natural sciences and biosciences to understand health and illness and well-being and using humanities and social sciences gives you the kind of a lens on the stuff that's often obscured by the natural sciences. So human relationships, questions around power or stigma or shame. But if you were to just use biomedicine as the lens through which you were trying to understand health and illness, you would never capture those things. They would fall out of the picture. And those things are arguably the most important because that's what people experience. There is a distinction that Luna wants to make between shame and shaming. Well, shame is commonly thought of as an emotion that we experience in ourselves that signals to us that we've done something or we are something that might compromise our social bonds. Shaming 
is better understood as an action that is directed at a person or a group of people. And shaming is sometimes used to try and provoke or instill shame in others. So shame is an emotion we experience, while shaming is an action conducted at a person or group of people. Some people have a lot of social power or resources to resist shaming. So no matter how often they're shamed, they may, may never experience shame as a result of that. Whereas other people or other populations can be very vulnerable to shaming. The connection between shame and shaming kind of demonstrates the social and political dimension of shame, um, that shame can be intentionally provoked in individuals through the machinations of political bodies, of communities, of, of those who hold more social power. We're going to go into more detail in episode two around precisely how shaming was mobilized during the pandemic. So I've been working really closely with two amazing researchers, uh, Dr. Arthur Rose and Dr. Fred Cooper. Um, Arthur is a literary and cultural studies scholar based at the University of Exeter, who has extensive experience working on issues related to breath and respiratory illness and respiratory disease and within the medical humanities. He's just published a book about asbestos. Fred Cooper is medical historian who specializes in loneliness and is also expert in issues around shame and belonging. Let's take a step back to tackle the emotion of shame a little more directly. I like to think about shame as like the central emotion of contemporary times and of, of neoliberal kind of ideologies where there's this a logic to neolib neoliberalism that has taken over day-to-day -day life where each individual is sort of self-actualizing and responsible for their own success or failing in life, whether because they're good, rational economic agents and make good decisions for their own life. And what that does is individualizes a whole range of social phenomena. So if you're poor, that's because you didn't work hard enough, you didn't try hard enough. And shame become central to that because then it's your own fault when actually there's a whole range of structural things that position people in particular ways within society that mean that often they don't have those opportunities for agency and choice. Shame is postulated to be like the master emotion by social theorists. It's the thing that's with us all the time that makes us conform to dominant social rules. So, you know, at any moment in any human interaction, People are following the kind of scripts of what is acceptable, normal, standard. Um, and the social theorists argue that the boundaries of that is shame and embarrassment. So you don't like suddenly take your clothes off in the middle of a conversation because you'd be sh shamed and embarrassed to do that. So you, you limit and restrict your behavior based on what's acceptable. And, and that's the shame, the threat of shame and, and related emotions like humiliation, mortification, embarrassment follow you around all the time and make you kind of conform to the dominant norms. And that's why, why it's sometimes talked about as like the glue that holds society together. So it's always there. It's ubiquitous is the term that, that some social theorists use. Shame is ubiquitous in human relations. Um, but interestingly, we never really talk about it or think about it. You know, it's not like it's ubiquitous, but it's also completely invisibilized. So it's not like we're having interactions thinking about shame and embarrassment. They're kind of like these invisible forces that are 
guiding what we do, what we say, how we behave, our comportment, how our bodies are moving and positioned, but we're not thinking about that consciously. It becomes kind of internalized. And um, so shame becomes like this unspoken, often invisibilized force in human relations. And then because it's taboo, so to admit to feeling shame is to admit that you're weak, you're vulnerable, that you're flawed, there's something wrong with you. And and all of those things in our dominant kind of cultural um, narrative are shameful as well. So even admitting shame is shameful. So then there's a kind of like shame loop that, you know, you feel shame, then you feel shame about the shame, and then, you know, on, onwards you go. Um, and that is like a shame spiral where you, you can kind of fall into a pit of shame. So because people don't like to talk about shame and won't confront it, that means it can be used as a powerful political force. When you think about like liberation politics, the whole like affective part of liberation politics is to turn shame into pride. So you've got like black is beautiful or gay pride or these marginalized groups of people who were previously like hidden away in society and designated as shameful or stigmatized or some, you know, something flawed or wrong or despicable about them and then the the political movement is to turn that shame into pride to be like out and celebrating the difference rather than hiding it away in you know underground or in institutions or or whatever so there's a lot of power in like a community recognizing how shame is being used to position them as inferior or marginalized and coming together around that shame and trying to convert it into a positive affect. But what often happens is that people just feel shame on their own and go, well, there's something wrong with me. I'm this terrible, flawed person. And and don't recognize the structural things. Like actually you're being systematically shamed by a government, for instance, which is something we saw a lot in COVID. A whole group of people being systematically shamed for being overweight or for living in ethnic communities or and so on. And when you recognize that pattern of shaming, that can be profoundly liberating. And one way to diffuse the power of shame is to share it, talk about it openly, be this politically induced shame or personal. It's when it's kept secret and stays underground that it becomes this really pernicious and damaging force in someone's life. And there's another type called chronic shame. Feminist philosopher Cassandra Lee Bartke, who writes about it as an affective attunement. You belong to a social group, so she writes about shame and gender. So women who are systematically positioned as the other or the second sex, to use Simone de Beauvoir's phrase, systematically positioned in society as less than or inferior, not as good as men or you know the dominant norm, which is like a patriarchal norm, which is men. And so women then internalize this sense of inferiority and self-consciousness so that that starts to dominate, become this affective attunement. So it's like a sense of shame that you're not good enough, you're being judged, you're flawed. But instead of it being like an acute episode of shame, you just live with this kind of disposition all the time. This is where you feel, according to a dominant social norm, that you are inferior and constantly being judged. Society set up in a way to position you as other or different or diminished or deficient. And then chronic shame, it might mean that you have a kind of heightened 
fear of shame or a heightened sense of anticipating shame that when you encounter others, you're like, oh, they're probably going to judge me because I'm not good enough. You know, you've got that internal feeling all the time and it might be because it actually does keep happening to you. <laughs> you do keep experiencing racism or sexism or whatever, but it then becomes this thing that you just internalize and experience regardless of whether that's happening. And sure, it rises for reasons around political oppression, social oppression, but it also is um, a consequence of trauma and relational trauma and childhood experiences of relational trauma. Um, it's also a consequence of certain psychopathologies or mental disorders. So there's a, a psychoanalyst or a psychotherapeutic thinker called Patricia de Young who's written a book about chronic shame. And I think this is really interesting, but she talks about in the book that people who she would treat and would identify as living with chronic shame would never speak about shame. So shame becomes not something that's present, becomes this kind of invisible force. She may never even mention to them that that's how she's understanding their experiences. So what they live with, she says, is not shame, but they live with the experience of trying not to fall into shame all the time. And so your whole life is kind of structured and organized around shame avoidance. So you might avoid certain conversations, you might avoid certain people, you might avoid certain settings because you're afraid of fear, you've got this fear of shameful exposure. So someone from a deprived community may never walk onto a university campus because they'd be like, well, everyone will see that I don't fit in, that I don't belong, that I don't have that kind of, I shouldn't be there, you know, so that it becomes this like invisible force. It lessens your capacity for empathy, for social engagement, political engagement, it's like hugely disempowering to live with chronic shame or as a shame subject. Okay, let's get back to healthcare professionals being shamed. In the UK, we saw paramedics, surgeons, and GPs being evicted from their homes by their landlords for fear of contamination. What else? Nurses and care workers were routinely abused on the street, spat at, shouted at, um, there was violence. So they were instructed to hide their uniforms, not walk down the street in their uniforms, put them on at work, take them off, take off your name tags. Um, and, you know, being verbally abused. There were loads of reporting of these, you know, being called super spreaders, virus spreaders, killers, contagious, all those things. So it became a regular enough phenomena and really concerning because on the one hand healthcare workers were like the heroes and we were clapping for them every Thursday night they were lauded as these exceptional people um, fighting on the front line but at the same time they were subject to abuse and shame and stigma. What's crucial when talking about the shaming of healthcare professionals is the war-based language that was used during the pandemic. This kind of wartime military metaphors is pretty common in public health um, to think about disease and fighting disease, combating infections and so on. Um, but it became like really dominant in COVID for lots of reasons. There was a, in the UK particularly, there were big parallels drawn to lockdown and World War II and the experience, you know, the hardships of living through the war and the, the bombings and um, and the hardships that people faced in lockdown um, and how we needed to kind of keep calm and carry on and, and demonstrate that we had the blitz spirit. M metaphors were used routinely by people in power 
obviously Boris Johnson's kind of personal fascination with Winston Churchill became part of that, where he saw himself as the next wartime prime minister, wanted to embody the Churchillian kind of way of facing crisis. And and how that played out in the healthcare context was potentially very negative because it positioned healthcare workers as soldiers on the front line, which meant they were expendable. And that, you know, having casualties is just the price of fighting in a war. Here's Dr. Arthur Rose. He's a research fellow in medical humanities at the University of Exeter to elaborate. What war does is it trades on this idea that certain activities are honourable and certain activities are dishonourable or shameworthy. And what that meant is that not only were doctors being asked or medical healthcare professionals, or in fact everybody in, in, in hospital settings, because one should be as, as kind of expensive of the people involved in the risks from porters through to consultants, what they were being asked to do was be in the hospital and the stakes of being in the hospital were set up as it were do you do something that is the honourable thing, which is, you know, kind of this Wilfred Owen, Dulce Decorum Est, which is, it is good and fitting to die for one's country, or do you do the shameworthy thing, which is run away? And really acting in a responsible way that is about what your capacities are, how ill you are, where you are in terms of that, demands that you break that kind of framing where it's either you do, either you're dying for your country or you're running away because really this wasn't a situation where that frame was helpful. In this series, we're going to delve into every aspect of the pandemic with regards to shame. We're going to speak to experts from across the country about how shame infected all of our lives to some extent. What that meant for the country's handling of COVID-19 and basically what it meant for us as a society. You've been listening to Shame and the Pandemic. I'd like to give a huge thanks to the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council, the Wellcome Trust, the Wellcome Centre for Cultures and Environments of Health, the University of Exeter, Alice Waterson, the Drama Department's podcast studio, and all our contributors. This podcast has been produced by Volume. I'm Paul McNally. See you next time. Volume.